we uh, there's not a rule that you have to do, use the three subs. You don't find us competitive. Um, he's, he's the best left back in Canada, without a doubt. All right, for episode 64, we're joined here by Manuel Vett of Transfer Market. We're very excited to have on to, to chat MLS, market values, even a little bit of Vancouver Whitecaps European football. So Manuel, thanks a ton for taking the time out of your day to, to join us on today's episode. Oh, I'm really looking forward to this chat and thank you so much for having me on, guys. I mean, first, I guess to, to start, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into things right away. Transfer market values. I think that's definitely some something that that many people wonder about. Kind of how how does the whole process of of getting these market values? I mean, they're they're certainly a trusted source of values. You see it, you know, every week. There's some there's coaches, managers, players who reference uh, their their transfer market values and and how that all that comes together. So I mean, maybe we'll kind of go go into more of the nitty gritty, but just to kind of like a warm-up question, like kind of how, how, what goes into calculating some of those values? Like kind of how does that process go up when you're, you're looking at a player, player X and thinking, okay, this is what his, his value should be rated at. Well, there's a lot of it that goes into it. Um, I mean, it's really determined by taking into account various pricing models as well as like a strong involvement by our community and Transfermarkt has quite a large community, right? Um, we also talk to agents, we talk to players, we talk, talk to coaches, managers, and um, I mean, that's sort of where the discussion around the, the values of a player is. And then, you know, you have you have certain factors, um, like is he a future prospect, age, performances, does he play for the national team, reputation, prestige, but also the, the, the league that a player plays in is, is a big factor as well. I always point it down to, to one thing that um, don't necessarily look at the actual player and his value, right? Because there's always discussions about that, but it's more about what would a player who's player or is like this player cost on the open market in the league that he's in, or if another another team from another league would want to price out that player from that league. That's really where, what it comes down to, right? I mean, there's a lot that goes into it, and some of it is, is a bit of a company secret, so I can't give it away all of it, but um, that's essentially essentially it in that paragraph so it's kind of it seems like to a certain extent the the kind of attractiveness of the player outwardly is a big part of the value like i'm curious do you hear from teams or from player agents about you know oh this guy's valued too low and and what are you putting into that evaluation like i i it seems kind of like you know, this is the, it's the ultimate kind of first source to go to to understand a player's standing, whether that's in their league, you know, within their country, at their position, whatever. How often do you, like as much as you guys maybe reach out to, you know, teams, agents to kind of start a dialogue, how often do people come after you to kind of go head to head about what the values are and what they maybe think they might, they, they maybe should be? The feedback is usually quite positive. The surprisingly, I mean, what we get sometimes is that agents are unhappy about us going too high because <laughs> they, they, they want to maybe sell a player or there's, there's negotiations or they, 
they target a certain market and then all of a sudden their player is worth X amount of money and they're like, well, because um, all the clubs and um, other agents, they, they use us as a benchmark. I mean, many of them are registered with, with the platform or pretty much all of them are registered with the platform. And then sometimes they will say like, oh, this, this, this volume means we can't maybe place this player there anymore because all of a sudden he's too high. I think, I mean, the dialogue is usually quite positive. Um, we do get a ton of feedback. Um, I that's something that started about a year ago, and when I started, it definitely surprised me how much feedback we get, and most of it is definitely positive. But yeah, I mean that there is there's always discussions and um, about where we place a player in the standings and and what what the market value means in terms of how that impacts the the, the player on on the transfer market because um, everyone looks at the platform, right? The agents look, the clubs look. Uh, I mean, we had uh, Lucesco yesterday say at a press conference that he, when he lost with Dynamo Kiev against Barcelona, that he was counting up all the transfer market market values <laughs> on Barcelona in his head, right? So it's like it's it's such a big platform and it's such an important platform, and I, I always think that the dialogue is actually very very positive. Well, kind of a question I have is because. With transfer values, what I think people are most interested by is especially the the lower profile players, the the smaller players, because most people have an idea what, say, Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo are worth. So I think those are pretty straightforward values. But how do you kind of calculate values of, say, players in, in MLS that people might not know as much of or, or younger prospects that are, you know, shooting up through the ranks or someone who's playing in, like, the second or first division of, you know, Ecuador, how do, how do you kind of come up with those values versus some of the bigger players? It's definitely more difficult. And um, I mean, MLS is a good example because those are, that's a league that I actively work on the market values. And it's, it's a league that's changing so fast, right? And it's, it's transforming on, on a rapid speed more quickly than any other league in the world. And um, for a long time, there wasn't much focus on the market values there. And I would say that that's a place where we have a lot of work to do in terms of getting it right. right? I mean, a great example is yesterday with Brian Reynolds, uh, 2 million and Juventus Turin have come in with a six to $7 million offer. So obviously we, we priced them wrong. Or, I mean, we, we can always adjust and we do adjust, right? We do, when we see transfers happening, we usually adjust then the value to the, to the latest transfer fee. Brendan Aronson, for example, we adjusted to the, the, to the fee that, Avi Salzburg paid for him, um, but it is. I mean, it is. It is a constant process. We always have to update. We always have to stay on top of it. And when it comes to smaller leagues, you know, we rely very heavily on lots of people that watch the games there. And it's it's not always that we get it right. Um, and sometimes a player will come out of nowhere, and then we have to adjust. I'm just looking here. This is uh, one guy that stood out to me in the playoffs, and it's it's kind of interesting, um, was Ricardo Pepe on uh, FC Dallas. And I'm just thinking of a guy like that as an example. You know, 17, the sample size is incredibly small. Like, how much caution do you take before, you know, he scores a goal in the playoffs, but that's not necessarily indicative of, you know, future success or or, or long, long-standing success. So at, at what point do you kind of decide, right, okay, it's, it's time to take another look at this guy's value and, and what do you kind of view as, okay, that's too small of a sample size. Where do you, where do you draw that line, especially on really young players? 
Pepe is an interesting one because we have him at 600,000, right? Yes. And um, he has played 17 games over the course of the entire season. So sample size isn't necessarily that small. I think a more interesting one is um, Caden Clark, right? Mm-hmm. Also a relatively small sample size, but we went very early on because his, t- his talent is apparent and the, t- the connection that he, I mean, it's it's a, an open secret that RB Leipzig have have a pre-contract with him, and that is value pretty early on, right? Um, with him, with Pepe, I mean, it is sort of it is sort of something that we always have to keep an eye on. I think at seventeen, his market value is already six hundred thousand. We're probably pretty straightforward, straight on with that one. If a European team would come in right now and sign someone like him, I, I would reckon he would go between five hundred thousand and a million dollars, right? Because of not being established, but let's say he he starts next year. He has he has a really good run in these uh, playoffs. Then then that's something that we have to have to reevaluate. And I mean, we are reevaluating the entire MLS at the end of the the playoffs. There's an entire market value update coming. Um, so you know, these are the players that we keep an eye on. We're just talking a bit about MLS because. Again, especially the youth players, it's been an interesting subject to see so many of these youth players go straight from from MLS academies now to to big teams. I mean, Chris Richards is an example. I guess he was at FC Dallas. I uh, didn't really he, he kind of bypassed the first team and went you know went to Bayern. I think that's a unique path. I mean, with all these stories of of younger and younger players going straight to Europe, is that going to change the way you guys look at, at prospects now as well? And, you know, might you have to start giving them higher values before they even set the set of foot on the first team pitch as a result? Yeah. We've definitely spoken about this quite a bit. Um, the, the values of young Americans is going up. And I mean, this is, this is, this is a reaction to the changing market, right? You Joe Scully is another one. He, he was signed by Gladbach before last December. Um, not so a year before he even turned 18, and when he could actually move, make, make his move to the Bundesliga, he was already signed for two million dollars by Gladbach. It's an enormous amount of money for for a 17 year old, and um, we're looking at this. And market and MLS is is changing. The league is is transforming itself from being a league that's still attracting, you know, the older players from Europe, the big superstars. Although I find they're getting younger as well. Uh, but it's also, you know, every team in MLS now has five, six players that are coming in from the academy and are essentially products that they are looking to move on with a profit. And that is something that we we have noticed. And, um, you, know, you know, our last update was primarily young players, including from the Vancouver Whitecaps, where we are saying, okay, these are young players. You know, they're playing in a very competitive league. And um, European teams are targeting them now, and this is this is this is something that will reflect the, the change of market values going forward. Because what I'm noticing, and this is something that I'm really find interesting, is the baseline of market values in MLS is changing. Right? You always have those very top players that are like worth 16 to, um, but then you also had players that were like worth 50,000 in an MLS squad. Those fifty thousand players are disappearing. They are getting replaced by players that are now worth five hundred thousand to a million. So the, it's the base value of players that's changing quite a bit, which means also that the entire, the, you know, clubs in general will see their market, their squad values grow by quite a bit in, in the next few updates. 
you mentioned uh, young players on the Whitecaps, and one guy who took a, a pretty significant step up and obviously had a, an impactful little run in a Whitecap shirt this year was uh, Thomas Sassal, up from 55000 to now $275,000. Uh, with a guy like that, uh, Axel Schuster said that if he wasn't the starting goalkeeper on opening day or he wasn't really in that battle for the starting spot that they'd look to either loan him out or give him an opportunity elsewhere. What is like, do you think that there is a market say in Europe for a guy like that? Or is that, you know, that sample size is quite small is it, would it require a year in the CPL at the USL level getting regular minutes in order to kind of, make his marketability a little bit higher to the point where teams are going to be swooping in to snatch him up. It's interesting that you mentioned Thomas Hazard because um, about a month ago, I had a conversation with an agent over in Germany and um, was, was speaking very highly of him. Right. Um, and said that this is, there's a keeper. So too bad. He had like this really horrible injury. Right. But mm-hmm. um, a keeper, because just because of not just the skill set, but also um, the way he's built, is very interesting for clubs over there. And because of that, I think there's a lot of teams over there that would be interested to take him on, right? Um, we're not talking Bundesliga, maybe even not even Bundesliga 2. It could be a third division somewhere, right? But which is for 21, um, could be an interesting step. And I think there is a market for him. It's um, like that. Um, if he recovers fully, right? Um, and that's basically where you say, okay, well, the sample size is small, but the skill is 100% apparent. It's obvious for, it's, it's there for everyone to see, right? So um, I think this is a keeper that has a very bright future. That's that's interesting that you bring up his his build and his frame. How much when, yeah. when, when you're talking with scouts, you're talking with agents, you're talking with, you know, teams, whoever it might be, you know, I, I so it was interesting that, you know, Axel Schuster spoke about how they were looking for, you know, the certain attributes they were looking for in a left winger. But how much does something like, you know, say, say height, weight, those types of things, do do clubs or and, and agent scouts get really specific about the, what they're looking for in that respect? Oh, yeah, 100%. Because there's certain things, right? You look at, you look at a kid like Theo Bear. Um, he has he has attributes that are not trainable, which is his size and his his body, and you know you a great example is um, a discussion that I had with um, a sporting director over in Germany about um, Hoffman, the, the Newcastle United striker Joel Linton, who was previously at Hoffenheim, and Hoffenheim they they bought Joel Linton based on the frame that he had, knowing that the skill set will come. Right, they were saying that he has a base skill, and there's a lot of things that we have to teach him. But his the, the way his body is built, that's not teachable. You know, you can't you can't just change someone's body; it's impossible. And so they loaned him out to Austria for two years, and then he came to Germany, and then they sold him for fifty million uh, euros to to Newcastle, right? Um, where he has been okay, I guess. But the the point rather is that they saw his projection based on what he was um, in terms of physical appearance. Another great example is um, Yusuf Paulsen at, um, at RB Leipzig. When Leipzig signed him, they were still in the third division and the, there was a lot of little issues that he had in terms of his uh, technical abilities. But his frame was perfect, right? 
they said like his athletics and everything, you know, that's something that we don't have to worry about. And the rest we can teach him, right? So play it, that, that is a big factor. You can't teach an, a meter 80 goalkeeper to be a meter 95. It's just, it's just not going to happen, right? And uh, a, lot of the, a lot of skills um, are learnable. Well, talking kind of about the full package, kind of, you know, as much as we sometimes might want to pretend otherwise, football is a business. And now more and more, I find players, it's not just what they do on the field, what's starting to count. It's also what happens off the field. Kind of how much is a player's now in in this modern age marketability getting impacted in their their values? Like, are, are teams looking at that? Is that something you guys are looking at? I think Alfonso Davies is a is a good example, one that we're all familiar with. Obviously, a special player, but also what he does off the field is also very special. And he, on his own, he's a, he's a big brand. Like, how does that kind of impact valuation? Because, like, you know, football is a business and all that kind of ties together now. A little bit less, I think. Um, I think that, that the, the clubs, I mean, the clubs like marketability. You know, they're not going to say no. But Bayern Munich didn't sign Alfonso Davies because um, of because he's a TikTok star or you know because he's Canadian. Those are nice little bonuses, but at the end of the day, uh, that's I think that is an aspect that I think a lot of people can overvalue a little bit. I mean, Bundesliga clubs are not signing Americans because because they are they're good for the league in terms of marketing the product in in the United States. Um, I think they really like that aspect, but they're not signing these players because of that. Um, you know, the times of doing that in the 90s, that was definitely a thing. You know, you would sign Japanese players and hope for the best in terms of like, maybe you, you get uh, more recognition in Japan or in China, you know. Um, but nowadays, that, that, that's not a big factor anymore. Um, I think it's a nice side effect at, at most. Well, kind of just following up on that, do you think that's maybe a byproduct of the North American market? Because I definitely know here, especially in MLS, that can be a big conversation of players' marketability. I mean, the Whitecaps are, are a prime example. There's always, you know, a, lot, a big, pretty big segment of people saying, well, you got to get that big name that people know of, that, that, that someone who will put butts in seats. Is that maybe just a North American kind of obsession? Maybe because before the league wasn't really as known for his talent as it was, as it is now? Yeah, but you you have to remember marketability in this case is be it signing a good player, right? So if like the Whitecaps sign a big name, and we had this discussion about Olivier Giroud, right, um, last year, then yeah, that's a marketable player and a recognizable figure, but it's also a good player, right? I think that's really what what people are asking for when it comes to the Whitecaps market in particular is the fact that. Yeah, like they want to want to have a player that's recognizable, but also a player that's maybe good, right? Um, and that's that kind of goes hand in hand there. Yeah, my my thought process there with, with you talking about that is, you know, how how is that big name worked out for the LA Galaxy this year, right? I mean, it, it's it's great to have the big name, but I think you make a a good point that maybe in the past, you know, MLS ten years ago you could get away with just the big name and not really having it work out. Now you not only need a big name, but it needs to be a competitive team and he needs to fit within the system as well. 100%. I mean, um, Galaxy went from Slatan Ibrahimovic 
to Chicharito and Chicharito was the big name and there was a lot of excitement and, and buzz about it but we all know that that, that franchise is a train wreck right and in so many ways and um really sad really i mean to see a club that is in so many ways probably the most recognizable club and the biggest club in this league being in being where they are right now um it's going to take a lot of work to fix that because it's the 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 designated player has to be more than just a big name these days it has to be you know i call them impact players this is something that i've talked about in the last couple weeks they designated player it's an impact player you're paying this player essentially big money to not only just put bums in the seat, as we like to say, but also to to score the important goals. And these MLS Cup playoffs showed that more than anything else. You know, any team that advanced so far um, advanced because of their best players. And those best players are also the designated players, whether it be Gustavo Bo for New England, Hani Muchta for Nashville, you know, um, Alan Pulido for, for Sporting Kansas City. Um, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, Seattle, there are three designated players where the three best players against the LA, against LAFC. You know, they are not just superstars in this league. They're not just designated players. They're also the best players. And that's, that's what I think a lot of people haven't really quite, or a lot of people running clubs in this league haven't quite understood. Kind of to, to follow up on, on that, I mean, it is it is a relevant you know topic now with with the unique situation with with financials being so so stretched out with obviously this pandemic we're dealing with how much do you find that the pandemic has, has affected potential transfers and obviously you know people know that things aren't teams aren't doing as great financially as they'd hope to be does that have an effect on transfers knowing that okay a team might have less money so they might be forced to sell a player and just that, that whole market, really, of, of being affected by the pandemic. Yeah, it's definitely slowed down. I mean, when we compare it to the year prior, um, there were still a lot of big moves, but we didn't have the very, very big moves, right? Um, I think the pandemic definitely has, has left quite a bit of mark. And we have to also understand this pandemic is far from being over. And even when the vaccine arrives, and it looks like it's soon, and even once everyone is vaccinated, this pandemic is going to be with us for a little bit longer, right? In terms of the, the impact that it had on the market. I mean, a lot of, a lot of teams have been without um, stadium attendance and probably will be without stadium attendance until at least August, right? In Europe, that means, um, you know, in Europe, a lot of leagues can get away with that, that the top four leagues certainly because of television money. But um, MLS, for example, that hurts. It hurts a lot. And I think that is something that's, you know, we saw the impact of it already a little bit, but I think the, the much bigger impact is still going to come. Yeah. We, I mean, we saw it certainly in the, in the media world with some, some longtime contributors at, uh, you know, at MLS soccer being let go. And then, you know, it, it just reminds you that it's not just on the footballing side or the fact that there aren't, you know, bums in the seats, as we've said several times, but people's jobs, people's livelihoods, you know, severely affected as well. But Manuel, I kind of wanted to circle back to something you'd said earlier that I've been thinking about a little bit based on the values you do and kind of what you talked about, the difference between, you know, the intangibles, the things you can't teach, like 
someone's physical ability like their size versus things that teams and clubs view as teachable. Do you think it's fair to say that a good transfer strategy then if you have the coaching, and obviously that's the big if, is to, you know, target the the guys with the physical tools that you like and then coach them up, you know, get them for that value and then make them into better players, especially at MLS when you look at squad depth and as much as, you know, maybe you want your designated players to come in and be, you know, right off the shelf, plug and play, but some of those depth signings are going to have to be, you know, projects for lack of a better term. Do you, so do you think that's a strategy that MLS clubs are using or should employ? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's going to be the spine of, of any team in this league going forward is, is the players that they essentially you coached up, whether they be someone that you scouted um, in another league or someone that's come up through your academy system. I, I'm 100% of the opinion that um, the designated player that you are signing is really just the, the cherry on top of a, a system that's already working and in place. Right, and I think that when you when you look at the way the successful teams have been built, um, Philadelphia Union, for example, come to mind, um, where Ernst Tanner has done a fantastic job. That that team relies very heavily on the players that have come through the academy system or have been scouted, and you know, and that's that's the future of this league. That you are going to find someone like Brandon Aronson, and you you. And you sell them for a massive profit to Europe. Um, the New York Red Bulls are another example. I think this is a, this is a club that has consciously made the decision to part ways with a lot of the older players ahead of the season, um, gone a lot younger, and um, even made a coaching change despite making the playoffs. Right, uh, with with the with a look of building, and I mean, I mean, in this case, they're building and developing players for RB Leipzig. This is just the reality of the Red Bull system. But that's 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 the future of this league, you know. The future of the league is not in an intermediary; is to be like Netherlands and Portugal to develop for the big leagues, right? That's the step that they they. I mean, most clubs are already there. I would say 70 percent of the clubs have already realized it. The rest that hasn't realized it, they are either living in a in a different reality, or they just don't don't understand where the market has been going, or they're just not capable of doing it. Whether Reasons, but I would say that 60, 70% of the clubs have realized that and they're doing it and they're doing it successfully. Well, it's good that Sam, you bring up coaching. So I think that could be an interesting question to kind of to go over because I mean, MLS's reputation in terms of what happens on the field, the players, I think it's, it's getting a lot better. I mean, the standard of coaching is, is also certainly something that's maybe that's going up and we're not realizing it as much or people aren't, aren't realizing. So you mentioned obviously Red Bull Salzburg and it's well known that Jesse March, American coach, former New York Red Bulls coach, what he's done there has been, been amazing. I mean, they play, they play great football. They've kind of done a lot of, of great things since he's been hired and, and even since before that. So kind of how is the, the coaching market you find in MLS changing? And do you think that's something that maybe teams are starting to, to look at more now that they've kind of seen some, some coaches make that jump in and been successful kind of like some of the players have? In the coaching market in MLS is difficult because I think a lot of coaches that come from abroad that have been famous, they're kind of going to underestimate the difficulties of coaching in this league because travel takes out a lot of coaching time, right? 
and so you can't coach the same way than you necessarily did in in the Bundesliga and the Serie A and the Premier League, where you travel on game day to play your opponent and then you travel back right the night after. That's just, we all know that's not the reality of this continent, and I think that is something that we we spoke before the pod about Bruce Arena, you know by by the definition of any other competition in the world, he would be a dinosaur. But he's done a phenomenal job this year. You know, Brian Schmetz is probably the best coach in this league. Right? Michael Bradley is another one. And I think that um, knowing, knowing this competition is very important uh, because MLS gets underestimated, I think, by a lot of people because they see the level of play, which is improving dramatically. And it's not the same as the top four leagues in Europe, obviously. But then they're like, oh, yeah, I must be easy. To, I'm going to be able, easy to be able to coach up my players here. And then they don't realize it's like, well, yeah, but you are going to fly a coach half the time, right? <laughs> For our flight from, I don't know, Kansas to Vancouver with like three layovers, layovers. like try to coach in between that. I mean, good luck to you. Like it's a very different environment. And I think so. I think. What we've really seen is it's very difficult for foreign coaches to come on. Very few have really made um, a difference. One that comes to mind is Tata Motino, right, at Atlanta, um, who has done, did a great job and then moved on and see what happened to Atlanta afterwards. So I think it's, it's really interesting. I think the coaches that have to come to this market have to really understand the difficulties of the field um, when, they, when they start coaching in Major League Soccer. It seems like even, you know, obviously we're, we focus on the Whitecaps a lot. And so Mark DeSantos, when you talk about coaching comes to mind, but even the differences between being an assistant or working the lower leagues in North America, some of the, you know, the strain of MLS, whether it's the travel, whether it's, you know, complex roster rules and, you know, re-entry drafts and free agency, all of that, it's, there's so many it feels like there's a lot more mechanisms. There's a lot more hoops you have to jump through at times. And I know that, you know, to, to your point, Dos Santos is, is talked about quite a bit, how, you know, certainly during this, this pandemic field filled season, how little time there was for training and, you know, and actually coaching things up with the players to the point that, you know, it was like, we can't switch formations in a given match because we haven't had time to, to train that formation. So do you think then then from a coaching perspective, like is there is the league moving in a direction where it's becoming more accessible for international managers, or is it still sort of advantageous to have someone who's been part of the system? Like where does the where does the future of MLS coaching lie in your estimation? Oh, that's such a loaded question. <laughs> it's very difficult because like I, I jump back and forth between two opinions of like we need foreign coaches to to advance the game. Like I applauded uh, Montreal's decision to bring in Thierry Henry because I think his vision of the game, although I still think he's a very raw commodity in terms of his coaching ability, I think his vision of the game is so interesting. But at the same time, you just see the success that the veterans are having. I mean, I can just circle back to Brian Schmetzer. He's uh, hands down the best coach. In- and he's been here for a long time, right? So sometimes the, the flashy foreign object that you're like looking at is not the best way to look to, to go. Like, you know, it's, a lot of it is about experience and navigating the, the psychology 
um, that it takes to win in this league. And, um, you know, a lot about coaching is about keeping your players motivated and keeping them on top of, of what is a very difficult schedule. And I think the experience of having worked in this league for many years can help you with that. And, I mean, I'm, I'm going to put my, my head out of the window saying that I think Seattle are going to defend their title this year. That's what it feels and, like right now, doesn't you know, it? Yeah, it, it does. Because like Schmetzer is the most experienced and best coach there, and he's going to get the best out of his team, and it's necessary. And it's the closest thing we have to a dynasty in this league, the Sounders, right? And um, I mean, I, I have, during this pandemic, that I've attended some of the, the things that the Sounders have done in terms of their media work and um, some of the analytics work that they do, and they're the best in the league in that regard as well. It's just a very well-run organization from top to bottom, and you know. But it starts with the it starts with the, it starts and ends with the manager, and that's Brian Schmetzer. And he's I, I, he, I mean, we were we the three of us have been lucky to go to press conferences of his post game and listen to his analysis. And I think he's it's just you know it just shows that sometimes you don't need that flashy foreigner to come in this league. Sometimes the manager that's been here for a long time and really knows the ins and outs is the best way to go forward. I guess kind of pivoting on that, we can kind of switch to, to, to MLS talk on the playoffs. I think it all, it's, it's an interesting, the playoffs with how it is, the one game, as we said, it's a crapshoot, kind of how, how things go. And so far in the first round, we've kind of, it, that's, that theory has kind of been proving seeing teams like Portland uh, Toronto, uh, Philadelphia, all all fall. Sporting Kansas City was, you know, a, a Timili uh, penalty shootout masterclass away from from falling. I mean, what what is this? What has been your main takeaway from this first round of playoffs? Uh, just looking at what has happened and kind of what what has gone on so far. I mean, it's been very chaotic. But is there anything maybe that's really stood out to you from these first round of games? The level of football and the difference between the, the teams that have been in the playoffs and have done well in the playoffs to the ones that were sort of on the fringe and not made it in. And I include the Whitecaps in this conversation. Um, I think that the Whitecaps were close in making these playoffs, but in reality, the gap between teams that are in this playoffs and um, are not in the playoffs is gigantic, right? been very competitive with the exception for for a few games um i you know sounders were far and above uh lafc although you know lafc missed their two best players because of COVID, but that's the reality today right um but I, I was very impressed by the level of play and i it really shows the best of the best of the league and it shows how far the league has come when it comes to the very best teams and i think that's very impressive um i think there's always still comical elements when it comes to MLS. I mean, we all enjoyed the Orlando City, New York City FC penalty shootout. I mean, that was classic MLS. Um, it was amazing. <laughs> that was so much fun. But, you know, it was it was fun. And you have to remember it's a game. That's it. The bottom line is a game. And sometimes these, like, Polish versions that we get from the big leagues in Europe and the Champions League, um, they, they kind of rob us of the joys and the confusion and the, the madness that the sport used and the MLS still has those elements, and it puts a smile on my face. I guess kind of, you mentioned the Whitecaps. I mean, we, we can kind of pivot off that. because You mentioned the Whitecaps can learn a lot from these playoffs. And I think 
you know, I don't think there's anyone out there that, that doesn't agree with that, that statement. I mean, it's just, you know, you see what, what teams can do. Even San Jose, technically, you know, the Whitecaps were close to San Jose, but just watching San Jose throw everything they had at Sporting Kansas City, you, you, you'd be hard-pressed for the Whitecaps to do that. I mean, maybe they could have put 10 men behind the ball and hoped for a nil-nil, but the reality is that, that, you know, even that would have been unlikely. So looking at these games, what do you think the Whitecaps should specifically focus on if they want to be a playoff team, say, next year or in the next two years or kind of going forward? What, what should they be looking at to, to using these playoffs as an inspiration, let's say? Wow, no, Alex. Um, <laughs> it's a tough one. I, it is a tough one because I think we do sort of know the answer, um, but it's a very complex answer. The It's a really top to bottom approach on how to build a club. I think it starts with the ownership. It goes to the sporting director and then to the manager and then the players that you choose. And all of that has to be A, in sync. It has to be world-class. And it has to be created with a vision in mind. And I give you a few examples of, you know, Philadelphia Union comes to mind. They, they have a top ownership group. And Jens Tanner, they signed a sporting director who in Germany had a very, Germany and Austria had a very good reputation, um, built one of the best youth academies in, in German football in 1860 before moving on to other clubs, Hoffenheim and, you know, Red Bull. And now has done it again in, in Philadelphia. And yes, they had out in the playoffs, a little bit of a crapshoot. And it happens. Um, but I just think it's really just the full approach of building a club. And that's something that the Whitecaps have to very seriously look at because I don't think the building blocks are there. They're just not there at the moment. They, the entire infrastructure, the entire surroundings of the clubs, is just doesn't have playoff caliber. You know, um, the decision-making, the way they sign players, it's just not happening for them. I mean, we, we talked, we talked, we talked before the podcast about Nashville, right? The fact that they went out and signed Hani Muhta for uh, top of my head, $2.8 million. Um, that's less than what the wife have spent on Lucas Cavallini. And Hani has made an enormous difference for this team. And he's a player that makes everyone around him better. I mean, they also signed Honda Cadiz from, from Benfica on loan, right? Um, another, and uh, that's just, it shows you, you need a bit of an access. You need a player that can be creative, that can kind of really give you a special element in midfield and also really accentuate the players in front of him um, while also acting an inspiration for the players behind him. And I think Hani Mukta has done that. I mean, he carried that team past Toronto. And Vancouver doesn't have a player like that. And, they doesn't exist on that roster. Lucas Cavallini is a very good striker, but he doesn't he doesn't really get much support. The most support he got from someone the Whitecaps wanted to get rid of, and that's Freddie Montero, right? <laughs> Who had to play out of position this year and was maybe in many ways their best player. Um, a designated player the Whitecaps have signed and spent a lot of money on is Ali Adnan. He's a left back. You know, that's not where your impact players are. And that's, that's, I think, my biggest, my opinion, your designated player has to be an impact player. He is the player that carries a very good difference on that day, right? And um, the Whitecaps just don't have that player. And they don't have, they, they, but they don't have the supporting group either. You know, it's, it's, it's lacking both the supporting group and the impact player. So 
it's it's a mess. And I mean, we're now in the second year of the Dos Santos era and he still hasn't gotten the full scouting staff. He still doesn't have uh, a proper sporting director. He still doesn't have um, the promises that are given to him by his ownership group. And this, this is an entire package. Um, so they have a lot of work to do to just maintain the status quo, let alone stay in step with what the rest of the league is doing. What, what really strikes me, not only about the, the white caps, but really most of the non-playoff teams from kind of comparing what I saw in the regular season with what I've seen so far in the playoffs is that, you know, not only the, it's more than just the ability to, you know, scout and bring in the, a, a good player and, and have a good signing. It's about the, the cohesiveness of the entire roster. And then that, as you said, extends all the way up to, you know, coaching manage upper management ownership and i think that whether it's la galaxy right now vancouver whitecaps you know salt lake in the west or even say you know inter miami to a certain degree in the east it feels more like a kind of random grab bag of players oh this might be a good guy this might be a good guy but with no real forethought for you know how all the pieces are going to fit together um you know is there a how do you other than like, is there a way for the Whitecaps? Because they've got this kind of grab bag collection of players. Can you, on the fly, turn that into something more cohesive? Or is it a is it a burn it down and, and, and try to build again kind of approach? <laughs> oh my god, I don't think the Whitecaps can afford another burn it down approach. Right, um, that's, that's the difficulty. Yeah. It's it's very difficult. I mean, you mentioned Inter Miami, and I'm not 100% sure I agree with you putting them in that bag because, I mean, this is an expansion franchise that made the playoffs in their first year. And um, they have found players like Lewis Morgan that has worked, who has worked out very well. He's uh, one of the best players in the league, in my opinion. He, you know, finding a player like that. Why have the Whitecaps not found a player like that, right? Um, signing him from Scotland and um, turning him into a player that's, whose market value has grown. I mean, crying out loud, Breck Shea has been a good signing for them. <laughs> so, you know, this has been a theme that, that's been kind of gone through this entire year as well. I mean, we, we, we look at Eric Cortado and the impact he's having at Sporting Kansas City. This is a player that was, that was sent away from the Whitecaps, right? I mean, which makes me think is like the players that previously didn't work out the Whitecaps but are now working out somewhere else. The problem is, is much deeper than that, right? Because usually when you, have, when you have players that are struggling at the franchise and then they go away and all of a sudden the potential that we always thought was there gets unleashed and it's like, hmm, if it happens once, okay. But this happens all the time, right? And then I, I'm not sure the whole burning it down and rebuilding approach I don't think that that club can afford doing that. It's it's really and that makes it really difficult, right? Because sometimes gutting it and uh, just rebuilding it is much easier. I mean, the expansion franchise is much easier than a club that's already in the league because you know they they get to to work with a blank canvas. And um, the few things that Inter Miami Inter Miami are not far away from being one of the best teams in the league. You know, it only takes a couple of to be there, and the people that work in the club know what they're doing. And uh, for them, it will be much easier to address the problems that they had. I mean, problems, they made the playoffs for crying out loud, but you know, it will be much easier for them than it will be for the Whitecaps. 
and that's that's a huge complicated issue like what do you replace what do you what do you bring in and how do you make it work it really takes someone with a vision to do it and um, I just don't see that person at the caps right now well looking at yeah looking at the the whole bill that the white caps have done it feels like there's been a lot of corners cut, you know, like you look at the scouting department, that's incomplete. The roster, there's some good pieces, but then there's also some holes that have been there for a while. I mean, you know, you have to feel from Mark DeSantos that he really hasn't had a midfield since he's been hired. He's had stages of it. And then they, they seem to, to finally, they got Inbaum and, and Bikel and Awusu, which, you know, they could try, at least try it together. And they never played a game together and one was sold on. And you look in the front office there, you know, there, there's a lot of, incomplete pieces so you think maybe for them this this offseason and going forward might it just be best for them to kind of go find all these holes that have been left behind from from some of the corners they've cut and just focus on filling them first before even worrying about about things such as the roster and and, and getting rid of players and then figuring out that whole that whole part of the puzzle out oh yeah 100 percent. i mean you you can't you can't start building a building without engineers you know that's that's the very foundation of it and then you hire your carpenters then you hire your plumbers you know and then you um, at the very end you put in the furniture and um we kind of just put in the furniture and hope for that the frame would hold up somehow right that's a great way to put it <laughs> but i mean a, a great example is uh, chicago right they had they had had a bad year last year. Um, they didn't make the playoffs this year, and and they're already looking on how to make this team better. Um, the the people that have worked there, Georg Heinz, the sporting director, Rafael Vicky, the the head coach, um, the the signing that they just made, the Espinosa, the young Ecuadorian. That's the sort of players that you want to bring in in this league, right? That's you know young and talented and. Um, with a look of developing and they're already making those signings. They already are able to target and identify players like that because they brought in an entire sporting team to make those decisions based on what they saw this year. Right. And that is, that is just shows you a huge difference between a team that's made, that's missed out on, but is much closer of getting into the playoffs than the white cups are based on where they are already in their decision-making. Yeah, it feels like the fire are very, even though they might not have all the, the pieces in place on the pitch, it does feel like throughout the front office, throughout the way the club is managed, maybe other than their logo and their kits, because that's been a bit of a mess. <laughs> but in terms of the actual kind of football operations on the playing side, it feels like, as you said, there's there's people with visions there, and I think that vision is being you know, portrayed throughout the organization. And that's obviously something the Whitecaps wanted, want to look for as we go down the line here. Mm -hmm. But so one individual player I wanted to bring up from the Whitecaps just briefly, because he's the one guy who's departed the club so far this off season is David Milinkovic. Now I know Manuel, you were certainly opinionated about Milinkovic when he came in and he, I, I think he, you know, he really beat out expectations coming from Hull you know, in a bad situation, there was certainly a lot of talk about, you know, his attributes, what he didn't and didn't possess. And then he plays well, 
kind of disappears into the abyss in the second half of the season. And someone who, for better or worse, was one of the Whitecaps' best creators is out the door and, and kind of under strange circumstances where it doesn't seem like, you know, whether it's Hull, whether it's the Whitecaps, whether it's another club, no one seems to really want this player. It was a bit of a bit of an odd way for him to exit. So I'm curious for your thoughts or anything you might have heard on, on, on the whole thing. Yeah, I had some some problems with the signing and uh, I feel very vindicated on how it worked out. Um, this was a class, classic agent signing, in my opinion. You know, it's a player with all the skills, but um, a history. And, you know, we saw him play. We all know what he can do. Um, that's not the issue. In all fairness, I, I hope it works out for, for Milinkovic, wherever he goes next. But, you know, this is this is... We had to do some digging on this, and in the end of the day, the, the Whitecaps didn't trigger their, um, the release like they the, 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 the buy-on clause that they had to they had to actually it was a forced buyout buy-on clause for the loan deal, right? They actually still have to pay the pay a fee to Hull for a player that's essentially now gone, and they're carrying a salary cap charge for it next year as well, right? Um, I mean, this is the 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 kind of the Roberto Luongo situation for Whitecaps, you know, that the salary fee doesn't just go away. In a salary cap league, that charge stays with you. Um, so this is not a good situation. And I mean, players like that end up at your clubs because you know agents. That's, you know, that's how this happens. Um, you hope for the best. You know that the player is talented. This agent tells you like, yeah, I have this really talented player. No one really wants him. What do you think? Can we make a deal? And it doesn't happen because you scouted this player well, because you know this player well. It's because you made a deal with an agent. It's an agent signing. It's the sort of signing that um, you do because you don't have this, the, the scouting department. You don't have the, the uh, strength in your, sporting, in, your, in your sporting director's decision-making to identify whether a player or not is a good fit. You know, it's classic. Um, the Whitecaps have done it many times over many years. It's not just—it's not—it's not just this regime. This has been going on for a long time. So you know, it's—it's it's upsetting because it's not ideal for the player. It's not ideal for the club. And um, at the end of the day, it's—it's it's something that you know um, is going to hurt the franchise going forward. Yeah, I mean, we—yeah, uh, this is just basically a quick follow-up. Like, what does that say, Manuel? To you know, prospective clubs when when ML, an MLS club that was struggling, you know, to score goals this year, struggling to create, had a guy who was, you know, putting up decent numbers, and yet they're essentially paying not to have him with the club next, next year. Like, that must be just a, you know, a massive red flag for anyone thinking about signing the player. Well, it doesn't look good, does it? Um, you know, it's... It's, it's, it's something that is <laughs> frustrating because um, if someone like me can figure out that the signing is, is possibly problematic on the very first day, then the decision makers in any club in around the world need to know it too. I mean, the Whitecaps are not alone in this. Um, a lot of clubs basically gamble when it comes to transfers. And, um, you know, they, they gamble with money that they sometimes don't really have to spend. And that, that's so frustrating because like, you could have also used this. You could have potentially used this money on someone in your academy who was just as good. Or maybe not quite as good yet, but 
and maybe in two or three years will be that good. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things like that with the White House where I'm like thinking there's players in the roster. It's like, why did they sign this guy? You know, before they signed this guy, waste money on this guy, they could save that money and then maybe play someone from, from the academy or play one of the young guys. And I mean, I mean, the, one of the big discussions we had all year was about Baldissimo, right? And the, the playing time he was getting. Even though his, his when you look at his hearts, his his stats, they they're not things that they have made. So why waste money on signings like that, right? It's just it just seems unnecessary, in my opinion. Well, to build off of that, kind of you know we're we're nearing the the end here, but we still got a, a few questions to to go over. But one one interesting way I guess that teams have started to to use to kind of maybe avoid that that agent pit of you know whatever can whatever dealings can sometimes happen in that sort of partnership is you know agreements with european teams i think we've seen that with you know obviously the red bulls is a unique example how their whole network of 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 red bull teams all over the planet i mean new york city obviously is a very well-known partnership with man city you look at um you know the Montreal Impact got a partnership with Bologna and now uh, other teams are hopping on it like Cincinnati recently with Hoffenheim. How do you think those partnerships are, are helping teams in MLS working with the European team saying, okay, if we have good young talent, he goes to you via us. But also if you guys have guys, you need to kind of get minutes and, and get, get playing time while he can come to us and there can kind of be that, that cohesion between, between teams. And might that be something that the Whitecaps should consider going forward? Yeah, there's a few more. There's like Dallas, right, with Bayern. Um, I know that uh, there's a few, a couple of other clubs that are working currently on getting that partnership going. Um, it, it's it's very beneficial in a ton of ways because because the the clubs in Europe obviously benefit from getting those youth players, right? Um, Bundesliga in particular is tapping up MLS players like crazy, but in return. And these corporation agreements often have this in place. So one of the big benefits for Cincinnati in this corporation agreement is that they have now access to SAP on all the tools that were developed in terms of scouting and the knowledge that Hoffenheim have in terms of Europe, right? All of a sudden, you have access to a massive database of players. It, it, saves, it, it is, in a way, cutting corners, but you're cutting corners with something that's developed at the very top level in the world, right? Um, so this partnership thing, Bayern, for example, they, they do a lot of, um, of the partnership with Dallas has to do with exchanging expertise and knowledge on, on the network that they have established in Germany, right? And also the expertise and knowledge that they have in terms of developing players. So if you are Cincinnati, and it will be curious how this partnership will work out in the medium term, you all of a sudden have access to a huge scouting network, right? Um, same, I mean, Red, New York Red Bull have the best scouting network in the world. They probably know every single player everywhere in the world, and they can identify a player that they need very quickly, um, whether it be in the United States, Brazil, Germany, Austria, anywhere. They have a very strong network as well. They, they, they are on it, right? And so you being part of a partnership like that gives you access to certain tools that you require to find talent, um, talented players that, that can help you immediately. And I think that is, that is something that, well, if you are the Whitecaps, that's something that you want to get onto. Um, 
this the I think it's it's the future of this league in the in the medium term. I mean, look, we have the Canadian Premier League and that that are looking to maybe have a team in the league that's going to be run by the Bundesliga, right? Um, because it will, will will give them unparalleled access to a whole bunch of players. Um, Atletico Madrid have invested there as well. It's the, it's the future of the game. A lot of people won't like it, but I think it's the future of the game. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to take it next, to the Canadian Premier League and to Atletico, Ottawa, and just the, the development of that league, kind of the model they're taking. I'm also curious for your thoughts on the uh, the scouting partnership the CPL has done. And I know that certainly the the burgeoning players union has, you know, had some thoughts. Coaches have had some negative reactions recently to this proposed rule about a certain amount of, you know, internationals through this network within those teams. Yeah. So just kind of a, a wide open question. Curious for your thoughts really on the CPL in general, those partnerships that are forming and also just kind of this scouting network and the way the league is dealing with that. Yeah. I mean, if you're a young league, uh, there's, there's been a lot of talk and discussions about it, but essentially um, when you are, when you are such a young league, you don't have the scouting networks that, you know, your competitors have. And uh, I've talked to three different agents about this recently, actually. And I thought the conversations were all very interesting and, in terms of um, what it means of finding players. Um, you know, one club that we have followed very closely lately is York Nine and the signings that they have made and the, the rebuild and the rebranding that's obviously going to happen at this club um, ha- have been significant. You know, they, they, they signed a young Brazilian player from Fluminense who wasn't technically on their books. He was, um, in, that's, that's William Wallace. And um, it's a very interesting, the, the process of this was very interesting because Fluminense were like, this is a very good player, um, you know, but his pathway to the first team is blocked by four other kids that are also very good on his position. He's just not going to get anywhere. And um, what I thought was really interesting with that particular transfer is that, okay, the club then made it happen and decided that it was best to move this, this player on. Um, in general, when, when I hear from conversations with the Canadian Premier League, the entire model is very interesting. It's all based on uh, Canadian Premier League teams don't, but don't, don't really pay transfer fees. So when you hear about transfer fees, those don't really happen in reality. These are all future incentives. Most players that are signed um, are signed from clubs with the club that sold the player hoping that maybe two, three years down the road, that player will be sold. And then the club that sold the player originally to the Canadian Premier League club will get a percentage of that transfer fee. It's all based on future incentives. And that's the model of that league. And it's, it's very interesting for a lot of teams or clubs and leagues around, your, around the world that have you know, these players and oftentimes have more talent that they need because they can, they can send these players on to the Canadian Premier League. And it's kind of like a future investment for them, right? Because um, before you get nothing, because this player doesn't develop into a player or gives up playing football, or maybe in the Canadian Premier League, has two or three good years, and then that, that team where he plays in the Canadian Premier League will sell him for 200000 300000 Now, if you get 20% of that, that's still better than nothing. And that's, I, that's where the Canadian Premier League is going with that, because it gives them access to a ton of talent available out there. right? Um, and with the way that it's all structured, 
that's why they have gone for the model that they have gone. And I personally think it's, it's, it's very clever. It's, it's very intelligent. It's a very good way of building the finances of the league because look, attendance isn't happening right now. The, it's a 10-year project. And um, they've lost basic, they're going to probably lose one or two years to COVID-19. And this is a way for them to make money. And it's a way for not only them to make money, but also for people that are potentially interested in investing in the league to make money, right? So I think it's a very clever way of, of doing it. Um, I can, I'm not happy about it because it, it hinders the, the decision-making on how you want to build your squad. I get that. But I mean, this is a two-year-old league. They need to they need to have the money come in, and they need to make it sustainable. It's, it's very interesting that you mention that because one thing that is I found interesting. Obviously, we all know that Media Pro is struggling right now, and that's a whole other story that you could dive into, you know, for a long time. But what I find interesting is that the CPL, like I think there's the stat saying that they're now shown in over like a hundred and something countries are have access to the CPL on on TV and, and whatnot. Do you think there's a link between what you said and this unique transfer model in there, the way that they're really putting themselves out there as a league and really making sure they're kind of starting to get known on all four, four corners of the globe? Yeah, I mean, that's the way to do it. It's, um, and they're very upfront and honest about it. You talk to any owner of the league, right? Um, to guys in the front office, but the owners directly, actually, they're, they're usually a little bit more honest about it. Yeah, well, that's the first thing they tell you. This is a league for young players, and we're trying to run a profit. We're going to we are a development league, you know. And that's that's. Um, I think there's. I personally don't think there's anything wrong with that. I personally applaud it, because you know, look, 70 percent of all the rosters are still Canadian, right? We weren't basically having um, three Canadian teams in this country that are playing on a professional level, and we added another eight. I mean, that's fantastic. Right, that are just focused on developing talent, and in the end of the day, the, the center of the football universe for now is Europe. So that's where we want our, our best players to go. We want our best Canadian players to play in Europe. We want, we want not just one Alfonso. We don't don't want just one Alfonso Davies. We want five, six, seven of them, at the best teams in Europe. Look at the Americans. I mean, the Americans. They now have like they have they have they have every position that plays for a top club in Europe. And that's who we are competing with on this continent. And the only way to get there as well is by developing talent and selling them on to these teams in Europe. That's the only way it's going to happen. So to kind of to add on to this whole discussion, um, you know, we talk about the CPL a little bit and the players that you know are going through that route, whether they're Canadians or whether they're young internationals that are brought in. But a big kind of question mark, bogey, whatever you want to call it, on the MLS's record has been how they handle, you know, say the 16 to 22 age group. That Those guys that are, you know, fringe players that come out of the academy or they're ready to come out of the academy, but maybe they're not quite ready for first team minutes yet. The MLS has done a number of iterations, rebranding, new plans for their development league, but we've yet to see anything really stick. Like what's your evaluation of the MLS's own approach towards, you know, a second league, a U23 league, their development kind of in between academies and the pros. And then also, you know, with the USL, other leagues in North America, like, is there, are there things that could or should change in that structure to, as you said, get 
you know, more and more top players to Europe as, as that's kind of the end goal, at least, you know, it, as we see it right now. It's consistency. You know, if you consent, consistently change the model, you, you're going to run the, 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 into the problem that you're not going to have a consistent model that works. Um, I th I'm really curious to see how this new youth league is going to work out. I think it's a very interesting, interesting thing. I mean, it kind of got lost a little bit with COVID. But um, at the end of the day, kids have to play. And, you know, the way I see MLS developing at the moment, I think they're on the right path. You just look at the amount of young players that are getting sold to Europe um, with a profit. I, I, you know, you can you can flaw MLS for a lot, but when it comes to developing young players, they they're getting there, and they're getting there much quicker than we thought. I mean, right now it seems almost like an avalanche of young players going to Europe, right? And um, we have to watch it. I mean, like a year ago, we thought, okay, well, we caught the Americans, and um, we're close to them now because of of Davies and David and all these other young players that we have. And then you know, twelve months on. It's, they have made this massive leap, and um, yes, they have ten times our population, but they're doing a very good job, you know. And that's what we're competing with is the United States and this continent. And if I was Canada soccer, I would be looking at them like, okay, well, we better stay on it because the the football on this continent is developing faster than anywhere else in the world. And if you are not sprinting, you're losing. I think that's a pretty good way to, to wrap things up. Unless Sam, you have any last, last uh, questions there or. No, I just, Manuel, as always, I appreciate your insights on such a wide variety of topics within the world of football because we can, we bounced around a ton on this, on this show and I was thoroughly <laughs> entertained and, and, and interested in, yeah, just really, really enjoyed the chat. So I uh, just wanted to say for me, a yeah, pleasure to have you on and, and I'm sure the listeners really appreciate it as well. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, guys. I miss hanging out with you at the press box at the Whitecaps. You know, we usually chat about this stuff uh, pre-game, so this is this is a nice way going down memory lane. And hopefully, we can do this soon again, and you know, in real life. Uh, yeah, it's been a while. I certainly miss certain bouncing bouncing all sorts of topics. I mean, obviously, you're well versed in a lot of a lot of areas. I mean, the European game. We didn't even touch on that. We could go on that for hours. I'm. And obviously what's going on in North America, it's fascinating. And yeah, hopefully in 2021, we say that about a lot of things, but it's certainly, it, it was, it will be something that I look forward to next year, but I guess maybe to, to kind of wrap up, just, you know, shout yourself out, where can people find you? Where can they find your work? And then uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up from there. Yeah. You, you can follow me on Twitter at, uh, at Manuel Veth. Um, I, I write for Transfermarkt. I run the North America sides of things for the, for Transfermarkt. I mean, and that's pretty much it. That's all I do. I, I write for Forbes as well, still, you know, here and there, like an opinion piece. But um, yeah, ninety percent of my work is on Transfermarkt nowadays. Yeah, and for and for those that Perfect. don't know, Manuel used to work the Pro Soccer USA beat for the for the Vancouver Whitecaps. So he's got some Whitecaps uh, specific chops as well. So he's you know has always got that to color his opinions a little bit, which is it's nice to see. You know, one of the one of the locals have success. So. So there we have it, a, you know, a great, honestly, a, a great chat with, uh, with Manuel, who was, you know, who, who joined the show and he gave a lot of insight on a, a range of varied topics. And he's obviously very, he's someone who's very knowledgeable in, in many facets of the sport, not just in North America and Europe. So definitely do check out his work and, and his tweets because uh, 
you'll find yourself learning about a, a lot of different soccer stuff by 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 listening to him and i think it was it was a pleasure that sam and i both shared to to have him on today yeah i think sometimes especially in mls for whatever reason it's it's easy to kind of get stuck in the weeds of your own team and not really view the league as a whole or not think about you know the sport of football in a more global sense and how your team or the teams you care about kind of fit into that big picture but manuel's always thinking about that big picture not only because it's his job to do so at transfer market but also just that's kind of the way he treats the game so i always find chatting with him whether it's casually on a podcast whether it's on you know match days media days we've always had a really good time going back and forth on a lot of these topics so i hope you enjoyed that discussion and i think it does a really good job of marking our kind of transition into off-season content where we're going to bounce around a little bit more you know be a little more reflective and and touch on a variety of topics instead of just you know the white caps and whether or not freddie montero should stay for 2021 and stuff like that so uh yeah looking forward to more of these interviews kind of you know diving into some new topics or ones we haven't touched on in a while and yeah just thank you manuel for coming on and i uh, hope that everyone enjoyed yeah and i think it was especially interesting to kind of so obviously, you know, we're at the base. We're pretty much still a Whitecaps podcast. We do like to dabble in a lot of interesting subjects, MLS. I mean, boy, those playoffs, uh, we could talk about those for, for a long time. I mean, CPL, Canadian soccer, you know, the both national teams. I mean, heck, obviously, since we started the podcast, uh, I mean, 80% of the time we've spent has been in a pandemic. But in a normal year, we could have talked about youth Canadian soccer, all sorts of stuff. So we're not... It's always interesting to hear, you know, globalize our perspectives, let's say. And I mean, it was very interesting to hear what he said. I had to say on the white caps in particular, because if there's been someone out there that's been outspoken on what the, the white caps do, it's definitely been Manuel. And I think he, you know, he brings up a lot of interesting points into how the club is wrong and where, you know, there's a lot of risks in what they're doing and why, why what they're doing might not end up paying off in the in the long term and in the short term and I think that that was super interesting to kind of hear from what he's heard from other clubs and you know what other teams around the league are doing versus what the Whitecaps doing and while it might seem like they're taking steps forward from our perspective how it could seem like they're really toiling behind and I think that was very interesting to kind of get that I don't even would it be fair to say reality check kind of you know, just, yeah, maybe we'll say reality check of what's going on around, around MLS and how that impacts the, the Whitecaps. Yeah, um, I think that to a certain extent, it helps bring some insight to a topic that we, we talked a lot about throughout the year, which is, you know, how can you look at individual players on the Whitecaps and kind of go, that's a good player, that's a good player, that's a good player, and yet the sum of those players just it doesn't add up it doesn't equal a a competitive football team at times and you know Manuel's thoughts about how you structure a club the kind of you know people and things you need in order to run successfully I think points to some of those issues but I was also on a kind of flipping it from being discouraged about the Whitecaps I was very encouraged about the way Manuel spoke about the CPL and I know obviously it's a it's a point of contention the role of Canadian players in the league and the reliance on internationals but I think the the fact that European clubs are viewing the CPL as a viable market financially and a a potentially fruitful and successful business model really encourages me because even if you know if that's what's required for now to get this league off the ground to really cement it in place 
yes, it's going to come potentially at the cost of, you know, some young Canadians getting spots in the lineup. But I think if it, if it provides a successful structure long-term and gets more young Canadians playing the pro game, then that's something I'm all for, even if there are some, some costs along the way in terms of, you know, development or in terms of how you, you structure the league. I think what he ended on is perfect for us to end on as well. Like the talk about Canadian soccer as a whole versus the U S and I think it's important that the CPL steps up to kind of give the Canadian, you know, Canada an advantage for, for building their national team, for example, especially on the men's side uh, where, you know, Canada's playing a very, you know, a big catch up game. And even on the women's side as well. I mean, this also kind of continues to apply why many people want more Canadian women's teams. Like the fact that there isn't a professional women's team is quite, you know, shambolic. The fact that it's not, there's not a team in NWSL or it, that there's not even been, you know, a league that might not like the fact that the, a, a women's league might not even happen for three or four years is, it's just, you know, it sucks. It, it, it's unfortunate. It shouldn't be that way. And I think, you know, looking at what the men have to do and their catch up to, to try to keep up with the U S I mean, First of all, looking at MLS, I mean, the Whitecaps, credit to them, they've done a good job of providing national team players for, for you know, you look at Alfonso Davies and even, you know, guys that are still on the team, Derek Cornelius, Lucas Cavallini, Russell Tiber, Maxim Capo, yada, yada, yada. You know, because you look at Toronto FC, as good as Jonathan Azoria and Richie Larea have been for them, they could be doing so much better. Obviously, you know, Io Akinola is a great example. Great player. Obviously, we don't know if he's Canadian, American, or Nigerian internationally yet because he can choose all three. But even then, like, in a playoff game, they have two – an informed striker and in Io Akinola has been one of the top goal scorers all year. And they put in Josie Altador, who's a great player. But, like, you see what happens when, you know, basically Toronto FC's decision-making relies a lot on the past, which in the past helped them win. But right now – it didn't, you know, didn't necessarily bring them results. And you look at Montreal, they're also doing a decent job at getting Canadians, but they've got a lot of young Canadians who aren't getting minutes yet. You look at some of their academy prospects, the only Canadians really getting minutes were Samuel Piet and Zachary Bogia. I mean, Anthony Jackson, Hamel, that guy's fallen off a cliff. I mean, they got rid of Maxime Crepeau, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there was already a massive leg in, in Canadian teams producing talent in MLS. So the CPL coming is, is, is massive and it, it's, it's changing things. So that's good to, to hear. And hopefully maybe in the long term, that can be the catalyst towards, uh, you know, Canada keeping up with the U.S. and having more of these players. Like just seeing a lot of these, you know, guys like young Americans that we mentioned, Chris Richards, an example, like who's, you know, what who's Canada's next Chris Richards going to be? We haven't seen anyone like that who's Canada's some of these players that come up through academies, Weston McKenney, Tyler Adams, who are those guys going to be? And obviously Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David are, are that, but they need a lot more to, to keep up. So I guess on that note, that's kind of where I want to, to end things off on that, that long little monologue. Yeah, I think the, the way I look at it, and I think the really good news for Canadian soccer fans is that even if you can't keep up to United States in the, the youth development arms race, so to speak, the fact that you've You've got a country that seems to be doing it very well. You've already had a little bit of the success yourself. Like if you just get caught up in that race and you're, you're pushing yourself and you're pushing your coaches, you're pushing your management, you're pushing your players to get to that next level, that should only increase the level of competition, the level of competency, the level of skill and, you know, everything that comes with it in the country. And so I'm, I'm encouraged despite, you know, the fact that the year of 2020 has been very discouraging at times. I think it's actually been 
in ways a, a very positive year for for football development in the sense that we're seeing you know what north american countries and teams and organizations can do to push their players along and have guys succeed at the top level so uh on that note you can find me as always at samuel underscore rowboat on twitter we are partway through our who should stay and who should go series on a6forever.com uh we've done the designated players we've done kind of middle-aged squad players so to speak or the the veterans of of the team we're doing uh young canadian midfielders and forwards right now that came out just a couple hours ago um kind of doing it based on what we'd like to see happen with the squad rather than necessarily what we expect to happen but there's polls in those articles so you can have your say you can vote as well it's been really fun so far lots of people have interacted with it so at 86forever.com you can find that check it out if you're so inclined and alex over to you yeah twitter uh find me there at alex gange ruzik uh i'll be been tweeting a lot of mls and following along there so you can find that uh writing been been you know kind of taking a not 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 necessarily a break but kind of slowed things down for now in terms of content but i am getting set to uh, you know when the time's right in the next few weeks really start doing some reviews of, of what went on in the season and start previewing a look at some of the new signings and how they fared i have an interesting article plan on mark DeSantos and formations everyone's two favorite subjects so you might want to some, stay something tuned he for that loves talking about with you by the way it's something that him and I, we just, we love to chat about. So, I mean, I don't know if I'll have anything directly from him in there about there, but I am definitely planning a bit of a study on, on in that and other other subjects uh, with Whitecaps related. So stay tuned for that and, and, and much more and whatever comes to mind, CPL, Canadian soccer. I never know what I'm going to write about each morning. So stay tuned for that. Check, check that out, btsnc.com. And on that note, have a good one. We'll see you for episode 65, uh, whenever that may be. But we do have some... More, more special episodes of planned in the future. So if you liked what, what we did today, uh, well, stay tuned for, for more like Thanks for listening, everyone.